Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Connie Huck and in today's episode, I'm joined by the physicist and best-selling author behind the hit book, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. He's transformed the way we see the universe with his writing. And today he's going to tell us all about his book, Reality is Not What It Seems, The Journey to Quantum Gravity. He's Carlo Rivelli. Carlo, welcome. Thank you very much. It is great to have you here. A brilliant brain is in the room. Carlo has brought along a number of objects that reflect his writing and his life. I'm looking forward to hearing the stories behind these. Carlo, you've spent your life exploring questions of time and space. Why did you decide to turn your thinking into popular books, writing for readers who know very little or even nothing about physics rather than experts? It's a late decision in my life. I study a topic, a subject, quantum gravity, which I think is uh, super interesting. (laughs) And uh, a lot of people have been asking me very often, uh, Mm. why don't you write about this? Why don't you write about this? And uh, for long, I kept saying no or postponing and thinking, well, I have to do my physics first uh, and I have to write technical books. But then uh, I felt that uh, the theory on which I was working had uh, grown enough to be taught and was too good a story not to tell it. Well, we've got the audiobook of Reality is Not What It Seems here and we're going to hear the opening of the book, read by Roy Macmillan. We are obsessed with ourselves. We study our history, our psychology, our philosophy, our gods. Much of our knowledge revolves around man himself, as if we were the most important things in the universe. I think I like physics because it opens a window through which we can see further. It gives me the sense of fresh air entering the house. What we see out there through the window is constantly surprising us. We have learned a great deal about the universe. In the course of the centuries, we have come to realise just how very many wrong ideas we had. We thought that the Earth was flat and that it was the still centre of our world, that the universe was small and unchanging. We believed that man was a breed apart without kinship to the other animals. We have learned of the existence of quarks, black holes, particles of light, waves of space, and of the extraordinary molecular structures in every cell of our bodies. The human race is like a growing child who discovers with amazement that the world consists not just of his bedroom and playground, but that it is vast, and that there are a thousand things to discover and innumerable ideas quite different from those with which he began. The universe is multiform and boundless, and we continue to stumble upon new aspects of it. The more we learn about the world, the more we are amazed by its variety, beauty and simplicity. But the more we discover, the more we understand that what we don't yet know is greater than what we know. The more powerful are telescopes, the stranger and more unexpected are the heavens we see. The closer we look at the minute detail of matter, the more we discover of its profound structure. Today, We see almost to the Big Bang, the great explosion from which 14 billion years ago all the galaxies were born. But we have already begun to glimpse something beyond the Big Bang. We have learned that space is curved, but already foresee that this same space is woven from vibrating quantum grains. Our knowledge of the elementary grammar of the world continues to grow. If we try to put together what we have learned about the physical world in the course of the 20th century, the clues point towards something profoundly different from what we were taught at school. 
an elementary structure of the world is emerging, generated by a swarm of quantum events where time and space do not exist. Quantum fields draw space, time, matter and light, exchanging information between one event and another. Reality is a network of granular events. The dynamic which connects them is probabilistic. Between one event and another, space, time, matter and energy melt in a cloud of probability. So beautifully put. Now, Carlo, I mentioned that you've brought a number of objects with you today. So let's take a look at the first one. This is confusing. It's a picture of you with a goat. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Carlo Watt. You're in your 20s, I'd say, here. Yeah. Looking so... very handsome with very long hair. I always think scientists often have good hair. You've got great hair here. And you're in a sort of unkempt garden. It looks very dreamy, I have to say. And there's a goat there as well that you're holding by a rope. Tell us a bit more about this and what is the relevance to the book? <laughs> Okay, so first of all, the name of the goat is Lucrezia. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she was a very nice animal. She was actually eating everything around, which creates some problems sometimes, especially <laughs> when she succeeded coming into the kitchen and eating uh, everything edible and not edible. <laughs> and uh, this was in the countryside, in fact, on the hills uh, in Umbria, in the central region of uh, Italy. A beautiful place, a marvelous place, where I spent a lot of time um, around my middle 20s. I was probably 20. 425 there. The place was called Cenci and uh, it was my university years so I would uh, very often escape from uh, Bologna where I was studying and go there and uh, spend days and days with my friends there. It and was, the goat. <laughs> and the goat, right, right. It was a strange place, a mixture of things. It was a combination of dreams. Everybody was going there and having a different dream. And uh, it's a combination between a sort of hippie commune. That was one way of putting it. The person who actually uh, started the place uh, was dreaming of having a school there. A school on the image of ancient Greek uh, schools. So all these different ideas of what the place should be were sort of interacting and so the result of the place was a total mess, of course. <laughs> but people were coming, staying, uh, sharing things, uh, discussing forever. We did marvellous things. We were talking a lot about dreams, dreams in the strict sense. So we had something we called the laboratory of dreams in which we were telling each other about our dreams and discussing forever about our dreams. This immense part of ourselves, which is dreaming in the night, mm. we were looking at the stars a lot. This mm. was in the in the hills, and uh, so we're spending the night looking at the stars. Uh, and uh, well, it was you know, these were the early seventies, and um, young people thought that there were different kind of humans starting a new world, uh, which we which we didn't, of course, and we failed. But it was fantastic. I spent a lot of time there, and it had an influence on me because. Um, it was a desire of changing everything, changing the way of thinking. I had already begun studying physics at the time, mm -hmm. and it was the period in which I was uh, slowly getting in love with science. I had begun studying physics a bit by chance. I am not at all one of these kids that since uh, childhood say, I want to be a scientist, or right. uh, not at all, not at all. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, I was studying physics at university and uh, more and more liking it. 
In fact, while, beside taking care of the gold, I was filling papers and papers of equations. And I was there when I was studying quantum mechanics, I studied general relativity, and thinking that uh, this was equally dreaming and uh, alternative to the everyday world that was outside that place. So for me, science uh, had uh, this uh, profoundly uh, revolutionary aspect uh, as the life that we were trying to put up together there. Well, let's hear again from the audiobook of Reality is Not What It Seems. And in this extract, we're taken back to ancient Greece and Democritus's theory of finite, indivisible atoms. The idea of Democritus's system is extremely simple. The entire universe is made up of a boundless space in which innumerable atoms run. Space is without limits, has neither an above nor a below, is without a centre or a boundary. Atoms have no qualities at all apart from their shape. They have no weight, no colour, no taste. By convention is sweet, by convention bitter, by convention hot, by convention colour, but by verity, atoms and void. Atoms are indivisible. They are the elementary grains of reality which cannot be further subdivided, and everything is made of them. They move freely in space, colliding one with another. They hook onto and push and pull each other. Similar atoms attract each other and join. This is the weave of the world. This is reality. Everything else is nothing but a byproduct, random and accidental, of this movement and this combining of atoms. The infinite variety of the substances of which the world is made derives solely from this combining of atoms. When atoms aggregate, the only thing that matters, the only thing that exists at the elementary level, is their shape, their arrangement, and the order in which they combine. Just as by combining the letters of the alphabet in different ways we may obtain comedies or tragedies, ridiculous stories or epic poems, so elementary atoms combine to produce the world in its endless variety. The metaphor is Democritus's own. There is no finality, no purpose in this endless dance of atoms. We, just like the rest of the natural world, are one of the many products of this infinite dance. The product, that is, of an accidental combination. Nature continues to experiment with forms and structures, and we, like the animals, are the products of a selection which is random and accidental over the course of eons of time. Our life is a combination of atoms. Our thoughts are made up of thin atoms. Our dreams are the products of atoms. Our hopes and our emotions are written in a language formed by combinations of atoms. The light which we see is comprised of atoms which bring us images. The seas are made of atoms as are our cities and the stars. It's an immense vision, boundless, incredibly simple and incredibly powerful, one on which the knowledge of a civilization would later be built. This part of the book in which I, I talk about Democritus, it's about ancient science, but it's really a way to get into modern science and to get to the actual research which I described. Because, in fact, a lot of this Democritian vision of the world comes back into modern science and comes back even more in the quantum gravity, which is the core of what I describe in the book. So it's a beginning of line that then is uh, continues through the book.
the book is sort of science, but then there's history and philosophy and everything. It really brings lots of questions into your head. And also, I always used to wonder when I was learning science, like, how did they determine this and that so long ago when knowledge was so limited? And your book really brings that to life. You can see someone sitting and, I don't know, observing a shaft of light through an opening and seeing little particles moving. Or It really sort of helps to bring that across. One thing I try to do is not just to state things, okay? So mm. one thing is to say, look, the Earth is a sphere. Mm. Okay, it's a fact. One can be said and one can learn, okay? But to give the story of how we found things, which to me is what is interesting, yes, right? Is a, how is it possible? You look around and why anybody came out with the idea that the Earth is a sphere? And in fact, very often, uh, the story is not so hard. If you go back to the observation and to what people thought, you follow the steps and you say, oh, yeah, uh, right. There is a reasonable path to this knowledge and uh, that's beauty, I think. Because uh, what's beauty about science is not the actual knowledge itself. It's a path of discovery, is adventure of science. Science is an adventure, is a process. It's a long process that started long ago and has continued uh, through the centuries and we are immersed in it mm. right now. There are plenty of things we don't know. So this adventure of uh, finding out step by step uh, how the world is, uh, which is like our life as individuals. We go out and we discover the world and we keep changing our mind and so did humanity. And this is the story I try to tell. Yes, yes. Science isn't a given. It's just, it's yeah. growing as we speak. So on to your next object, which is a petrol siphoning tube. Can you <laughs> explain this one to me? <laughs> yes, with a little bit of embarrassment, but I can. Um, I hope I don't getting in trouble for that, but uh, it's long ago, so I think there are some legal protections for Phew. crimes which are too old. Um, so this is uh, related to the fact that uh, one of the main activities during my youth was to travel. And I traveled as much as I could uh, in all possible manners, in all ways, uh, uh, hitchhiking with trains. And one way I traveled was also by car at some point, because at some point I got hold of a little Fiat, one of these mini, teeny, teeny Italian <laughs> cars, and I was traveling around. But of course, I had no money, and petrol uh, is, is expensive. It was actually much less expensive in the early 70s. Right? But for <laughs> yeah. me, it was enormously expensive. So I was just gently taking away petrol from other people's cars during the <laughs> night uh, and using it for, for myself and uh, often leaving a little note saying, thank you very much, I'm sorry, I hope it it's nice that you, you had a conscience about your thoughts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I didn't believe in a, a private property at all, so I thought that uh, if people took away things for me, it was fine. But at the same time, I was allowed to take away things yeah. from other people if I needed it, <laughs> and I needed to travel. So the way it works is very simple. You just need a tube, possibly a little bit transparent, so you can uh, suck out, yeah, out suck of the, the tube with, uh, with your mouth. Then seal it up. Uh, and, and, and you see the, the petrol that comes up in the tube and you have to stop a little bit before you Drink start it. drinking <laughs> petrol because it's definitely not pleasant. And you close it with your finger and then you turn the tube down and you put it ahead of a container and then you siphon out the petrol from the car and uh, usually in the car it remains sufficient petrol so the poor guy uh, can get a to a petrol station and, 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 and fill it 
I hope there's no listeners now that are going to say, but I learned this uh, on a Penguin podcast when the police picked them up for <laughs> stealing petrol. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, I, I, I was, yes, I was never picked up. I think uh, it's more than 40 years, so I'm fine. And yeah, you're in the clear. Yeah. <laughs> if you are stealing petrol, make sure to hold the tube at a lower level than where the petrol starts from, and that's when it starts uh, pouring absolutely, out. Absolutely, and do leave a little note, especially because... Uh, oh, yeah, leave a note. Yeah. If you're stealing petrol, Anyone, yeah, leave because, because you don't want somebody to leave in the morning to go to the job and think he has a full tank and he hasn't. That would be unpleasant. Because then he might think he's got a hole in his tank right. or that he's going mad. We're going to go on now to the next audiobook extract. And in this clip, you introduce the late, great Albert Einstein. The father of Albert Einstein built power stations in Italy. When Albert was a young boy, the Maxwell equations were only a few decades old but Italy was entering its industrial revolution and the turbines and transformers that his father constructed were already based on them. The power of the new physics was obvious. Albert was a rebel. His parents left him in Germany to attend high school, but he found the German school system too rigid and militaristic. He couldn't stand the authority of the school and abandoned his studies. He joined his parents in Italy in Pavia and spent his life loafing. Later, he went to study in Switzerland, initially failing to get into the Zurich Polytechnic as he wished. After his university years, he could not find a research position and, in order to live with the girl he loved, he found employment at the patent office of Bern. It wasn't much of a profession for a physics graduate, but it gave Albert time to think and to work independently. And he did think and work. After all, this is what he had done since his early youth. He would read Euclid's Elements and Kant's Critique of Pure Reason instead of attending to what he was being taught at school. You don't get to new places by following established tracks. At the age of 25, Einstein sends to the Annalen der Physik three articles. Each was worthy of a Nobel Prize and more. Each one of the three is a pillar supporting our understanding of the world. Zurich Polytechnic must be kicking themselves to this very day. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, he went back then. They, they, they tried to make up for the... <laughs> <laughs> so reality is not what it seems. Tells the story of physics all the way from classical thinking to modern work that's continuing today in quantum gravity with a cast of characters ranging from... It's a brilliant lineup. We've got Plato and Pythagoras and Newton, of course, and as we heard in that extract, Einstein. Do you enjoy researching the human stories behind the history of physics and do you think that's very important in your writing? Yes, I read naturally about the uh, history of science. I'm curious uh, mm. and so all through my life when I studied the science uh, I also read about the scientists and uh, I was always curious of how you got there. Einstein obviously fascinates me not just for his physics but also for his politics, his rebelliousness, his cultural attitude toward the world. Mm. But the scientists are incredibly different from one another. Faraday, Maxwell, they are uh, Newton, uh, they are very peculiar character, each one following his own path, uh, uh, but all of them taking a risk and going their own mm. way in different manners. Uh, and so I, I read a lot about them. And I think that to understand their science, one also has to understand their life. Then it becomes more clear. Um, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think to be a great scientist, to some extent, you need to be a risk taker because you're often challenging 
convention or perceived wisdom, and that can ruffle lots of feathers along the way. So I think the two almost come hand in hand to some extent. Right, I, I fully agree. The scientists have all sorts of different characters, but there's one thing that brings them together is this, this risk-taking. Even the more conservative ones, Max mm. Planck. Max Planck was a very conservative German professor uh, that does things properly, that writes the way you should do, that dresses mm. the way you <laughs> should dress and all that. But then at some point he finds something that doesn't fit and uh, goes completely out of convention, completely out of physics, and doesn't hesitate. And this uh, courage of stepping out of the common ground is what makes science, I believe. Definitely. So on to your next object, and this is another photograph. So here we we get to the third, uh, uh, I would say, side of uh, what I did as a young man, which is politics. Here in this uh, picture, I'm standing and uh, talking to the crowd. And uh, it's not obvious, but there wasn't a huge crowd, obviously. And I was not one of the great leaders of the revolution at all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was uh, one of the many, many young people that at the time were trying to change the world. I got in trouble for that. I had a clash with the police because boundary between legal and illegal, as as it was clear from my traveling story. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It was pretty vague. But uh, I was certainly not alone in this big uh, dream of changing the world. And changing the world, making a world... uh, I mean, the the dreams were radical, but uh, the aim was to make a world more gentle, more just, more human, Mm. without uh, weapons, without killing, without uh, boundaries, um, without separation, without rich and poor. So quite a different world than the world that has developed since. Yeah, but there's still time left. (laughs) There's still time left, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And uh, there's a sentence, uh, the revolution is like an older... Talpa, I don't know the English word. This animal that uh, goes underground. Uh, and mole. Dis- yeah, mole. mole. Uh, okay. Goes underground, disappears, and it's not there anymore. And then it appears somewhere else. Yes. So I hope the dreams don't die. That particular picture, I think, is when I decided uh, not to go to the military, to the compulsory military service that was uh, still in place in Italy at the time. Right. Everybody had to go to the army. And uh, I was a pacifist, so I decided not to go to the army. And I didn't go, and my friends uh, organized a little uh, demonstration in my hometown, Verona. And uh, it was very nice. When the evening came, uh, the decision was that I would uh, give myself up to the police. And so we we alerted the police for that. The police yep. came there in the main square of Verona. And while I was going there, I didn't know, but my friend had um, a car with some loudspeakers uh, and uh, the night was coming, and there was a big fire. They were burning some image of uh, missiles or something like that. It was this night, this fire. And suddenly, imagine by John Lennon mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> filling like in the air and this great silence. And imagine I was walking toward the police, uh, and I was thinking I was a great hero. Yeah, uh, it does sound <laughs> like some sort of epic <laughs> film ending. <laughs> yes. And uh, in fact, I was hoping that they would keep me in jail for very, very long so everybody would um, appreciate my heroism. Yeah. But they didn't keep me in jail for very oh. long. They left me out <laughs> very, very so rapidly. So you said, I want to be a martyr. I want <laughs> to be, well, I mean, a little bit well, of a martyr. On, yeah. Not too much of a martyr, <laughs> not, but a little yeah. bit. Uh, not to, to the yeah, extent. Um, so I was left out very quickly. And uh, not long after that, uh, compulsory military service was being disappearing in Europe all over. Phew. 
That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> but also what I want to hear is more from the audiobook. So let's hear a bit more of Reality is Not What It Seems. There is a paradox at the heart of our understanding of the physical world. General relativity and quantum mechanics, the two jewels that the 20th century has left us, have been prolific in gifts for comprehending the world and for today's technology. From the first of these, cosmology has developed, as well as astrophysics, the study of gravitational waves and of black holes. The second has provided the foundation for atomic physics, nuclear physics, the physics of elementary particles and of condensed matter and of much else besides. And yet, between the two theories, there is something that grates. They cannot both be true, at least not in their present forms, because they appear to contradict each other. The gravitational field is described without taking quantum mechanics into account, without accounting for the fact that fields are quantum fields. And quantum mechanics is formulated without taking into account the fact that space-time curves and is described by Einstein's equations. A university student attending lectures on general relativity in the morning and others on quantum mechanics in the afternoon might be forgiven for concluding that his professors are fools or that they haven't talked to each other for at least a century. In the morning, the world is a curved space-time where everything is continuous. In the afternoon, the world is a flat one where discrete quanta of energy leap and interact. The paradox resides in the fact that both theories work remarkably well. With every experiment and every test, nature continues to say, you are right, to general relativity, and continues to say, you are right, to quantum mechanics as well, despite the seemingly opposite assumptions on which the two theories are founded. It is clear that something still eludes us. Which leads us on very neatly to your next object, because this represents one of your own contributions to this field, the loop quantum gravity theory. So this is a picture of you with a space-time model, I believe, made out of key rings. Right. My going into science is very much related to the development of this theory. And uh, when in my life I completely merged myself in science, everything else disappeared a little bit. And I was madly in love with this problem. I was immersed in that. My days, my nights were about that. And this picture is me. I'm 40 there. I know of the age because uh, I cut my hair at 40. Ah. I don't know. It, I, I seem younger than the previous pictures, but in fact, I'm much older than the previous pictures. This uh, photo, I think, because you've got your hair is not grey at all. You You've got not any wrinkles. You look a lot younger than 40. Yeah, I know. And I know. That was when I cut my hair. I, I just went back in time for a little bit, yes. <laughs> nice. Good. Without uh, having to go into right, a black hole a black or anything. Hole. So tell us a bit about the model that you're tinkering with right. so we, in the photo. Uh, with colleagues, we were beginning to develop this theory, loop quantum gravity, which is the attempt to bring together uh, quantum mechanics and uh, uh, general relativity. So to uh, bridge this uh, big gap in... Uh, current understanding of the world. And this is a theory in which many people are still working today. It's one of the current attempts to solve the problem. And uh, the main prediction of the theory itself is that uh, space in which we live has a structure. So it's not a continuous thing, has a, a sort of atomic structure like Democritus was imagining for matter. But here we're not talking about matter, we're talking about space itself. So space as a structure is a little bit like a T-shirt, which if you see from a distance is continuous, but if you see from close, it's weaved. Yeah. 
by um, threads, yeah. uh, intertwined threads. Um, but of course, uh, a T-shirt is two-dimensional. It's, it's, it's a surface where uh, space is three-dimensional. We immerse in it. So imagine something that weaves a three-dimensional thing. Mm. It's not easy to imagine. So at some point, I decided to build a model of a three-dimensional weaved thing. And mm. here I am uh, with my little model, <laughs> which is uh, made uh, by some plastic holder around. And then the space is a lot of key rings. So this model is like lots of interconnecting key rings. So they're essentially growing into a mass of key rings, which is like a ball of key rings, That's essentially. Right. So it's 3D key ring structure. It's a sort of 3D chain mail or something like that, yeah. which took forever to... <laughs> to me to find out how to actually do it <laughs> because I have to do it so many times and I uh, here I am uh, attaching key ring to one another. I actually had to find all these key rings and uh, <laughs> hardware stores in Verona only had a box or two of key rings. Oh. So I, I went around every single hardware store you in Verona. You needed the factory. And, and, and bought all the key rings around <laughs> for a while. So there was a key ring deficiency in Verona. There was a key ring deficiency in Verona for a while. Um, you explain it well in the book as well. In that It's like a foam, isn't it? When you see lots of bubbles together in a 3D mass, that's also how the loops yes. manage to unify... The two different theories. Yes. So that, so that, why is it not an accepted theory? What are the holes in loop quantum gravity? Oh, I don't theory? know why everybody doesn't don't accept yeah, my theory. Because, my theory is obviously right, so yeah. everybody should accept well, it. But string theory doesn't work. <laughs> well, in the same way, does it? Well, the, um, the problem of quantum gravity is an open problem. Uh, there is more than one attempt to solve it. And uh, the way science works uh, is that you face problems, you try to write solutions, and uh, if solutions work uh, sort of theoretically, then you don't believe them until you test them. All right. And that's why science is different from other activities. Mm. And that's the strength of science, of course, that you you can dream whatever you want, but then you have to go down to the proof of the brute facts. Mm. You have to find a, a way of testing theories. And um, if the theory survive the test, you start believing it for, for real. Mm-hmm. So when Einstein did his uh, marvelous intellectual construction about space and time a century ago, uh, people said, okay, bravo, but it's, you know, do we really believe you? And in fact, many people didn't believe him. Yeah. And then slowly, all the predictions of the theory were confirmed, one after the other. And uh, the theory has received confirmations uh, all the way through the century uh, until recently with the gravitational waves detection. And similarly for quantum mechanics and for particle standard model. So loop quantum gravity it's a possible solution of the big open problem of combining general relativity and quantum mechanics, but it's not tested yet. So, justly and correctly, there are different <laughs> the alternatives bah, <laughs> out, bah humbug. out there. <laughs> and uh, there is a discussion, and the discussion is very good. I mean, the discussion is uh, sometimes fierce and uh, even brutal, and that's fine, because mm. uh, we learn by discussing and by attacking each other ideas because in this way you see the weakness, you see the weak points. But at the end of the day, clarity will come the moment in which we can say, look, this theory has this prediction and this prediction is verified, so I now start taking this theory seriously. It's a matter of time. But time doesn't exist, everyone. Read the book. (laughs) Uh, But let's hear one final clip anyway from the audio book of Reality is Not What It Seems.
One of the very first and most beautiful pages in the history of science is the passage in Plato's Phaedo, in which Socrates explains the shape of the earth. Socrates says he believes the earth is a sphere, with great valleys where men live. He's basically right, if a bit confused. He adds, I'm not sure. This page is worth much more than all of the nonsense on the immortality of the soul which fills the rest of the dialogue. It's not just the oldest text to come down to us which speaks explicitly of the fact that the earth must be spherical. More importantly, it shines with the crystalline clarity with which Plato acknowledges the limits of the knowledge of his time. I'm not sure, says Socrates. This acute awareness of our ignorance is the heart of scientific thinking. It is thanks to this awareness of the limits of our knowledge that we have learned so much. We are not certain of all which we suspect, just as Socrates was not sure of the spherical nature of the earth. We are exploring at the borders of our knowledge. Awareness of the limits of our knowledge is also awareness of the fact that what we know may turn out to be wrong or inexact. Only by keeping in mind that our beliefs may turn out to be wrong is it possible to free ourselves from wrong ideas and to learn. To learn something, it is necessary to have the courage to accept that what we think we know, including our most rooted convictions, may be wrong or at least naive. Shadows on the walls of Plato's cave. Science is born from this act of humility, not trusting blindly in our past knowledge and our intuition, not believing what everyone says, not having faith in the accumulated knowledge of our fathers and grandfathers. We learn nothing if we think that we already know the essentials, if we assume that they were written in a book or known by the elders of the tribe. The centuries in which people had faith in what they believed were the centuries in which little new was learned. Had they trusted the knowledge of their fathers, Einstein, Newton and Copernicus would never have called things into question and would never have been able to move our knowledge forwards. If no one had raised doubts, we would still be worshipping pharaohs and thinking that the earth is supported on the back of a giant turtle. Even our most efficacious knowledge, such as that found by Newton, may eventually turn out, as Einstein showed, to be simplistic. So that was our final clip, and sadly it's time for your final object. But this one is, ah, this one is perhaps an extension of your brain, a notebook with mathematical calculations. Is this where you scrawl the beginnings of all your ideas? <laughs> the point about this uh, notebook is to show what is actually the daily life of a theoretical physicist when right. um, he does or she does uh, theoretical physics, which is not to be in the lab, uh, is not to work with proton electrons of gravitational waves, but it's just to have a, a, a notebook and a pencil or a pen. Uh, no uh, large hadron colliders. No large hadron <laughs> collider for a theoretical physicist. So what theoretical physicists do is three things. I mean, first talk to one another a lot. So there's a lot of discussing in front of a blackboard and debating and trying. And uh, second, reading, reading other papers, reading. Um, but third and most importantly, and that's the actual core of the game, having a piece of paper and trying to write some equations and uh, trying to express in clear mathematical form the intuitions that one, uh, one has. And this is a long, long activity which often goes nowhere. In fact, most <laughs> of the time goes nowhere. It's not, oh, I have an idea, I write it down, I write a paper. Uh, it's very rarely like that. Most of the time is, oh, I write an idea, I write an equation. No, it doesn't work. Something is missing. Uh, maybe this and that give that. No, it doesn't. Uh, oh, maybe it's this and, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, over and over and over. I love it. Of course, 
many people would consider doing this incredibly boring, but I love it. I, I love when I can do that. In fact, when my life gets filled with uh, other stuff, like writing books and yeah. <laughs> going around and traveling. <laughs> doing uh, podcasts. I, doing podca <laughs> I miss being home alone and... Uh, and uh, with your notebook. Yes, with my notebook. Did, did Loop writing. Quantum Gravity start in this very notebook? Oh, definitely, absolutely, oh, yes. Wow. Uh, definitely, yes. This, this notebook is, a, is an important this notebook. Is a, yes, and so in the old notebooks, I have piles and piles of old notebooks. One day they'll probably be worth millions at oh, auction somewhere. Or maybe not, somewhere. or they just go into the junk bin. And <laughs> Do you carry your notebook around with you at all times? Yeah. Then? Is it possible for you to ever switch off completely from physics? Because you're surrounded by physics. I think about physics very often, but yeah. I do switch off completely. How? I, uh, <laughs> What's your secret? Well, <laughs> well uh, I live by the sea. Right. I have a little boat. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I travel in my boat. Uh, I like traveling. Um, there's so many beautiful things in the world, mm -hmm. and I'm attracted by many of them. Yeah. And many of them, though, then bring you back to seeing the horizon and thinking how small we are in this great universe. Um, your books have been so popular, selling hundreds of thousands of copies around the world. What does it feel like knowing that there is that appetite for your books out there? For me, it has been a surprise, a great surprise, uh, especially because since I grew up a little bit of as an outsider, both before being a physicist, but also as a physicist a little bit, because mm. I, I, I went my own way. Um, then I had the surprise of being taken seriously in my scientific work, which was great, mm. um, but also a bit strange. Oh, people take <laughs> me seriously. <laughs> people didn't take me seriously when I was walking around with a goat. Um, and then I started writing these books, and it happened a little bit by accident because people were asking me. And uh, I realized that people read what I write and, and, and are inspired by that. It's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Uh, is, I'm still surprised and I'm still not sure I believe it, but it's <laughs> happening. <laughs> there's a wonderful thing that you say at the end that you hope that there's a young reader reading the book that will take it on. And that's what makes your books brilliant because they're quite accessible to someone that's just at the beginning of their interest in physics or at the beginning of the path. Yeah. From reading your book, you see that that's where Einstein was at once. So, you know, you can really sort of relate to the continuing journey. Yes, I always think about this young reader who will continue. They're out there. Yeah. And is there another book on the horizon? There is a book which will be coming, which once again is motivated by everybody asking me the same question. <laughs> and the same question is, what about time? What do we know about time? What we don't know about time? So I decided to try to answer this question and write down everything I do understand or everything I don't understand about the nature of time. So that is the next book. We cannot wait to read it. We hope it won't take a long time. Excuse the pun. But Carlo, thank you so much for coming in. It's been illuminating. I've got a million other questions that I want to ask you, but we'll let you go for now. Thank you so much, Carlo. Thank you. Thank you very much. New from Penguin Random House Audio, the perfect guide to the little things in life. Micromastery by Robert Twigger explains how most successful people, including Nobel Prize winners, nurture multiple areas of knowledge and activity that feed their central subject. 
YouTube has clips of The Great Egg Race, a long-running TV show in the 1980s, hosted by an amiable German-born egghead called Dr Heinz Wolf. Like a forerunner and more inventive version of Scrap Heap Challenge, contestants had to build a gadget with limited resources to meet the challenge set out at the start of the show. In the early series, all the tasks involved an egg that mustn't be broken, the first task being to make a machine to transport an egg the furthest distance possible using only paper clips, card and rubber bands. It was such a simple idea, yet it gave rise to incredibly inventive machines. And it all started with an egg, something rather small and humble. Life can be overwhelming. We want to do as much as we can, see the world, learn new things, and it can all get a bit too much. I reached a point in my life when I felt that I could no longer be interested in everything. I had to shut some of life out, and I didn't like that. I was living under the assumption, the false assumption as it turned out, that to know anything worthwhile took years of study, so I might as well forget it. But something inside me rebelled. I still wanted to learn new things and make new things. It didn't have to be big things. I was happy to leave that till later. Start small. Start humble. Start with an egg. So I was thinking about how long it would take to learn how to cook really well. I recalled a chef telling me that the real test is doing something simple, like making a perfect omelette. Everything you know about cooking comes out in this simple dish. So I decided to switch the order around. Instead of spending 10,000 hours learning the basics of cookery and then showing my expertise in omelette making, I'd start with just making an omelette. I really focused on making that omelette. I separated it from the basic need that cooking usually fulfills, filling my stomach, so that it now occupied a special, singular place in my life. It had become a micro-mastery. Whether it's making a perfect souffle, dancing a tango or lighting a fire, when we take the time to cultivate small areas of expertise, we change everything. We become faster and more fearless learners, spot more creative opportunities, improve our brain health and boost our happiness. The skills acquired in painting a door flawlessly or growing delicious chilies will unexpectedly transform your life and are available now to download and own on Audible and iTunes.